Amen and amen and amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today as we step back into our study of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 26 through 31. You can follow along on the Version live event that's out there. Um, or uh, if you, if you want to look for that, you can find me on Facebook and click. Uh, my name is Seth Shelton. You can find me on Facebook, Find the Way Church on Facebook. Click the link, shut Facebook, and just watch Version live events. Wrong time to be on Facebook, but... It's a useful tool to get you where you're going. Uh, or uh, if you're old school, 883, and the Bibles that are in front of you, if you don't have your own Bible, that's our gift to you. We'd encourage you to take it home with you. Read it. It's the Word of God that does the work, and so we trust in it. We believe it has power for life, and so we would encourage you to take that with you. Uh, let me just kind of set the stage to get us into the story, give a recap of where we're at. Jesus has been proclaimed to be guilty. He was innocent. But he's been condemned as one who is guilty. The, the rejection that he knew was coming has reached its full point, like its pinnacle moment. He's been betrayed, arrested, abandoned, denied, and condemned, uh, first by the Jews, who then brought him to Pilate, and Pilate sends him to Herod. And, and in Pilate and Herod, there's a kind of a snag in the Jewish plan. Like Pilate and Herod both determined that Jesus is innocent. And so they, 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 they present him as that. And Pilate looks for ways to get out of this problem. Pilate looks for ways to, to, um, to not deal with the problem of Jesus. And three times he says he's innocent and his, his, uh, his agreement with the Jews or his desire to appease the Jews, I should say, his desire to appease the Jews, he, he says, well, I, he's innocent, but let me beat him and I'll release him. Let me just beat him and we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But the Jews won't take no for an answer. They won't have anything to do with that. Uh, and they continue to press urgently, more urgently. Every time Pilate comes up with an alternative to, to, to Jesus dying, they, they press harder. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now Luke has been setting up for us this identity or this perspective to hold of who Jesus is. Jesus is, and we, we've learned this, we've seen it play out over the last, well, really over the last two and a half years, but we've seen it really highlighted over the last several weeks. Jesus is the anointed Christ. He was the one that had been promised was coming, uh, and, <clears throat> and the Jews had been expecting. He's the divine son of man. Those were his words. He made that reference to himself. He's the divine son of man, and he is the eternal son of God. He is the prophet that reveals God's truth. And for those who would respond to God's truth, who would hear it from him and receive him as a prophet, they would find redemption. But for those who would reject him, they would find judgment and condemnation. Jesus is the priest, the great high priest that stands now between God and man as an intermediary. He is the way, he is our way to interact, to, to find a way to God. He deposed the priesthood. He unseated, in a sense, the high priest of the day. He demonstrated to be their 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 religion and the Jewish practices, the temple worship, he presented it as hypocrisy and empty. He demonstrated that he was the great high priest. And Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. All authorities will answer to him. Whether they would receive him or reject him at some point, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what Luke has been demonstrating even as we approach the cross. This is the identity that he has been pressing on us as the Jews seek to reject him as their Christ, as the Son of God. They seek to reject him as their king. They bring him to Pilate with these, with, with these charges. He's saying he's a king and, and wanting Pilate to do something, and Pilate's like, he's innocent. But as we saw last week, in fact, the very last words that we saw, that we read last week in verse 25, says that Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, that's Barabbas. 
for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate delivered Jesus over to the will of the Jews to be crucified. Jesus, this innocent man, the innocent son of God, condemned to die. You see, what Luke is really presenting to us in, this, in these last passages as he moves with, with, uh, with details around the coming crucifixion is that Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, the eternal son of God, is also our sacrificial lamb. Without spot or blemish, without, he's innocent. He's been demonstrated to be innocent. What they have claimed against him are lies. He is innocent and not guilty without spot or blemish. He died in our place and for our sins so that we, the guilty, could be treated as if we were innocent. Not only was Luke seeking to present this identity to us, this is who Jesus knew himself to be. So rather than fight back, rather than resist in some way, rather than seeking to defend himself, when Pilate hands him over to the will of the Jews to be crucified, when he hands him over to the guards that would escort him, Jesus didn't resist, he just went. And that's where we step into the story again. Verse 26 As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if, they do not, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In spite of his innocence, Jesus has been condemned as if he were a criminal. Jesus is condemned and treated as a criminal. And this, is a, this crucifixion that he's about to endure is common. It's normal in the Roman government. This is something that they were doing all across their empire. It wasn't the first time probably that Jews had seen a condemned man carrying a cross through the city streets on his way to be crucified. This was not unique in that sense. This may have been, it likely was, one of the the highest attended death walks, if you will. I don't know what else to call it. Jesus is a dead man walking on the way to the cross, right? So this is probably one of the highest attended. Luke tells us there's a great multitude of people surrounding him. You just imagine the scene. In fact, these, two, these first two verses, 26 through, and 27, help us begin to see this, this scene. This scene of, 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 a, of a Christ who has been condemned, who is walking uh, to his death. The scene of a great multitude of people, some watching to, just because they're curious, some watching because they think they have condemned the man rightly, and some watching, mourning and weeping. In fact, Luke specifically calls out women mourning and weeping. And then this man, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, I mean, just imagine, he wasn't likely in the city. In fact, it, 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 it seems to emphasize that he wasn't in the city when Jesus was being tried all night long by the Jews. He wasn't in the city when, when the Sanhedrin met and officially condemned him and decided to hand him over Pilate. Simon of Cyrene probably wasn't in the city when the Jews were standing in Pilate's courtyard, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He wasn't in the city when Pilate says, hey, Just take him and kill him. 
This man who was coming in from the country, who was coming in from outside the walls, is suddenly thrust front and center to see the suffering of this man, Jesus. Maybe a man who he had never laid his eyes on before. He'd likely heard of him. He'd likely heard the name Jesus. He'd likely heard of the miracle worker. He'd likely heard about how he taught with authority. He'd likely heard of all the good works that he had done. But here he is, thrust front and center. As Jesus, weak, beaten and bloody, is forced to carry his own cross. You see, these crucifixions, they were... They were fairly commonplace, fairly normal. And the Romans, uh, they did this and for a couple of reasons, really. One, it would humiliate the, the, the person who was condemned. It would humiliate them in their guilt, but it would also be, act as crowd control. It would act as a people control. Like, man, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get crucified, right? So, so there's a, a deterrent, a, a crime and uh, a deterrent to rebellion, why in the world would we, would we go against the Romans? We, we don't want any part of that. We don't want to end up crucified. And so they wouldn't just take the, the condemned out to the place that they were going to crucify him or them. They would take the condemned and humiliate them one last time by strapping the cross on them and causing them, forcing them to carry it to the place where they would die. Now there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not Jesus would have been carrying the whole cross. There's a lot of discussion about whether he was just carrying the cross beam that he would be nailed to by his hands or, or whether he was carrying the whole thing, whether it was just the, 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 the top piece or the vertical piece as well. We, we don't know. But honestly, I don't think it matters. Because at the end of the day, it was doing what the Romans wanted to do. Everybody could see that this man was condemned. Everyone could see that this, that this man in some way had, had crossed Rome, had been a problem for Rome, and Rome could flex their muscle, humiliate the condemned, and, and frighten the people who were watching. But what matters is, is that there's a reality that in this moment, at this point, Jesus, for some reason, can't carry the cross. Now, John tells us, in fact, I was having this discussion in the middle of, uh, between services, but between first and second service, I was having this conversation. I have it in my notes to, to mention that, that John records for us that he carried his own cross. In his account, in his gospel record, John tells us that Christ carried his own cross. In the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each point out that Jesus had to have help. Well, why did he need to have help? Tradition tells us that he was falling, he was stumbling. Because he had been physically weakened by all that he had endured. Well, remember, this, this ordeal, Jesus' ordeal, does not start with him carrying the cross. It started the night before. It started the night before, just after he leaves the upper room. They walk out of the city. They go to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he leaves his disciples behind him. And he walks in further and he kneels and prays. And Luke paints a picture of intense prayer, where he pleads with his father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save people from sin and wrath, please let this cup pass from me. But not my will, 
yours be done. And, and he tells us that, that an angel came and ministered to Jesus. And when the angel came, he just, he just prayed even more intensely. So much so that Luke tells us that, that his sweat became like great drops of blood. And, and we don't know if that's metaphorical, like he was just sweating profusely, or if he was really sweating great drops of blood. We don't, we don't know. No, most theologians, most of the commentators that I read from think that this is literal, like he's literally bleeding out of his sweat glands. But imagine the weight and the emotional, this emotional pressure that he's under as he recognizes, I am innocent, I am your son. But I am about to endure the weight of the sin of the world. If there be any other way, may this cup pass from me. Now I just want, I just want you to think about this. Because, because if, I mean, we face a little bit of trouble. Do we not feel the weight of that trouble? Do we not feel the weight of that difficulty? This is like no trouble we have ever known. This is an intensity of of, of pressure that we have never had to endure. And then he walks out from prayer knowing the will of the Father that he is going to carry the weight of the sin of his people. And he finds his followers sleeping. They've already begun to abandon him. Why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? And as he addresses them in their sleep and he invites them by grace into prayer with him. Judas, one of the twelve, walks into that circle leading an angry mob of Jewish people who have come to arrest him. Have you ever been betrayed by a dear friend? Have you ever known that you've done nothing wrong and a dear friend betrays you? That's what he's dealing with. The weight of the prayer, the weight of the reality that his apostles have slept on him, the weight of the reality that now he is being betrayed by one of his own, the weight of the reality that there is a mob of angry Jews coming to arrest him as if he is a criminal. He says to them, I was with you every day in the temple. I was with you teaching. And now you're going to come out at me, come out against me as if I'm a criminal? And all night long, he shuffled back and forth between trials, facing false accusations, being ridiculed, beaten, spit upon, mocked. Annas first, then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then as soon as the sun comes up, the Sanhedrin meets one final time, and they say, you are guilty. You are not our king. We will not receive you as our Christ. You must die. And so they bring him to Pilate. And the pilot's like, oh, well, he's innocent. So, so this, glimmer of, of this, this glimmer of light in the midst of this dark, dark situation, and the Jews will have nothing to do with it. So he's like, let me just beat him. Let me just beat him and, and then I'll release him. Let me just beat him. Yeah. He beats him okay. Or all right. I mean, he beats him. 
Not only is he beat by Pilate and Pilate's, Jew, uh, Pilate's guards, but he is beat by Herod and Herod's guards. All night long, all morning long, Jesus is being beaten and ridiculed and mocked, rejected and betrayed. It comes to this point in the, in the story, as you begin to put the, put the four gospel accounts together, it comes to this point in the story where, where Pilate hands him over to be scourged and crucified, and the scourging is horrific. It's a common part of the crucifixion process, if you've, you've probably heard about it. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you've seen images of it. I'm not even certain that they really do it justice. Eusebius, one of the ancient church historians, lived in the early... Uh, late 200s to early 300s mentions these scourgings as a common part of crucifixions. Uh, not Jesus' scourging, but just the scourging that the Romans would, would bring on those who would be uh, punished. He writes this about them. He says, The bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. The things that were on the inside were visible from the outside. Listen, Jesus would eventually die on the cross, but by the time they give him the cross to carry, he is beaten nearly half to death. And then finally, they would push, they would fashion a crown of thorns, one last. One last press, one last ridicule, one last act of mockery. They would crown, they would fashion a crown of thorns and they would press upon his head. (laughs) Here's your crown, you king. Jesus wasn't just being killed, he was being crushed and humiliated. He was being forced to carry the shame of sin. Because he who knew no sin became sin. But this is exactly what he said would happen. This is exactly what he knew was coming. He had been talking about this. He had been preparing his disciples for it. Just the night before, maybe 12 hours earlier, in the upper room with his disciples, before they'd gone out to the garden, before this ordeal begins, Jesus tells them, everything that's written about me must be fulfilled. And then he makes specific reference to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 12 to be exact. But he says, everything about it has to be fulfilled. Well, I would encourage you at some point to go back and read the whole thing in context just to see this, 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 this prophecy of this suffering servant. But, but let me just share with you some of the highlights of it, if you could call it that. The, the prophecy actually begins at the end of chapter 52, but, but let me just read some of these things to you. Beginning first Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Listen, by the time they place this cross on him, whether it's just a cross beam or the whole thing, Jesus is a beaten, bloody mess. And the prophecy says he's not even going to be recognizable as human. He's not going to even bear the resemblance or some human semblance. I, I think the pictures that you might see in the Passion of the Christ just don't do justice to what Jesus has endured. You see, I think the reality is, is that, that he looks worse than we could imagine. He, he looks worse than we let ourselves think. We go on, 53 
verses 3 through 5, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Let me just bring some perspective here because in this first place we begin to see we begin to see him not looking human we we we, we see in the second place so there's this place he's so marty so beaten it's it, it's 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 indistinguishable but it's not just a physical thing that we're turning our faces from it's a spiritual face that we're turning away as well we don't want to look at him we don't want to think about him we always don't well i just can't imagine what he dealt with It's not just a physical reality. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God. We turn our spiritual faces away so that we don't have to consider it. He was crushed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And and with his wounds we are healed. We push down to verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. See, Jesus isn't just dying. He is being crushed under the weight of our sin, fully drinking the cup of God's wrath on behalf of God's people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In verse 12, the one he specifically applied to himself Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was condemned as a criminal. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And already we begin to see, as Isaiah paints this picture of this suffering servant, we begin to see that he suffered for a purpose. He suffered for a reason. He suffered so that others could be counted righteous. He suffered to make intercession for transgressors. He suffered so that the guilty could be counted innocent. Now by referencing Isaiah 53 and telling the apostles what was written about him must be fulfilled, Jesus is telling them that that all that they're going to see happen, all that we're witnessing happen in this moment, all that this scene entails with Jesus beaten, bloody mess, having a cross put upon him, having struggles carrying it so that, so that Simon of Cyrene was dragged in, it's front row seat for this suffering. It was all supposed to happen. This was no accident. It had all been prophesied. In his commentary, Philip Ryken makes the point, as far as our atonement is concerned, the forgiveness of our sins, it was only necessary for Jesus to die. But in order for Jesus to do the full work of our salvation, it was necessary for him to die in this way, alone, abandoned, and abused. Listen, I... I don't, I, don't want to make, I don't want to move on without making this point. I want you to see just how seriously our holy, righteous God takes sin. This is no trifling thing. This is no trifling matter. This is no small, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, 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 no. Our holy, righteous God suffered 
he watched his only begotten son be treated with great shame. But on the other hand, I don't want you to miss the great love and grace that he has for those who would receive him and not reject him. See, this is the scene. Jesus exhausted, weakened, beaten, and bloody on his way to a cross to be crucified for our sin. Simon of Cyrene now carrying the cross, a great multitude surrounding them on each side of the street, watching him, some of them probably shouting insults, continuing to mock. And then Luke calls out these women, wailing, weeping. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard anything like this. I don't even know that I'd heard anything to this extent or to this degree, but what comes to mind is is the last time we were in our village in West Africa where we're working, the village of Kappa. It wasn't the last time I was in Africa. The last time I was in this particular village, Kappa, one of the the women in the village died, and in the middle of the night they found out that she was dead, and they didn't wait to the morning to be, they didn't wait to begin morning until morning they called the wailing women and the, 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 the women who were mourners to their courtyard and to their house in the middle of the night, and, and they wailed. I mean, they mourned. There was this almost a sense of howling and anguish. I don't even know how to describe it, but it was just this cry that wouldn't end. It was so loud that it woke us up in the middle of the night and we're distant from them and we heard them and you just hear the pain and the anguish and the, and the sympathy and the pity and you just think, oh my gosh, what has happened? We, didn't, we had no idea until the next morning that somebody had died, but, but it was so drastic, it was so intense, you could feel the weight and the sadness wailing and weeping. So I find it shocking that in response to that, Jesus turns around and says, do not weep for me. I mean, consider the scene. Consider what he's already enduring. Consider he's already, he's already a beaten, bloody mess. He's half dead already. He's not even made it to the, to the place of crucifixion yet. He's been, he's been beaten severely. He's been scorched so that his insides are on the outside. And now they've humiliated him by putting a cross upon him to carry through the streets, surrounded by a great multitude. And he hears these women wailing. Just imagine, if this is me, I mean, if this is me watching this scene and and looking around, I'm like, oh, wail some more. Pity me some more. I want you to recognize what I'm doing and what I'm feeling, and I want to feel that you are sympathizing with me. I want to feel that. I want to feel justified in my emotion. I want to feel justified in the reality of what I'm suffering. I don't deserve this. Well, for me some more. Oh, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Why? Why? Why weep for yourselves and for your children? You see, Jesus isn't telling them that they shouldn't see the injustice and the miscarriage of 
justice that's taking place. He's not saying that they shouldn't in some way see the horrific events in front of them and not feel in some way as this is a horrific event. He's saying there's a greater reason to weep than for me. There's something more to be mourned here than me. You see, Jesus knows this. We've already had the benefit. We have the benefit of history looking back. We've already seen the hints of it in Isaiah's prophecy. But Jesus' condemnation brings salvation to all who receive him at the same time that it brings judgment upon all who reject him. At the very same time I am being saved, those who reject Jesus are being condemned. At the very same time that he is working out salvation for his people, he is bringing judgment upon any who would reject him. So in some way, I mean, really knowing Jesus, getting to understand who he is and and really knowing that this is the purpose for which he came, we can begin to see, okay, so it shouldn't surprise us so much that he says this. What surprises me is that his people don't often follow him in it. I find myself too quick to want the pity, to want to be recognized for the struggles that I face, the light and momentary afflictions that in some way will prepare me for glory. And totally miss out on the fact that that in his call for them not to weep, to recognize the judgment that's coming, to miss the fact that he has given me and you as brothers and sisters in Christ an ability and an opportunity and a greater reason to celebrate. Do not weep for me, he says. Weep for yourselves. He says to these women who are not of his followers, who are of the Jewish people, daughters of Jerusalem, who are being condemned by this action, by this rejection of their Christ, weep for yourselves. It wasn't long before this that he had made a pre, a, a, another similar argument. The, the night that the apostles, the 72 of his followers, were coming back to him, he had sent out 72 to go ahead of him to preach the gospel in the places that he was going to go. He had sent them to preach the gospel of the kingdom to prepare them to meet Jesus. And they go and they go out and they preach the gospel and say, they see some great and amazing things happen and they come back to Jesus and they're celebrating. Even the demons did what we said. Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. We saw so many powerful things happen we're so excited by this and Jesus corrects them in Luke chapter 10 20 and he says nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven he's not saying that we shouldn't be excited that we have his power working within us he's not saying that we should just ignore the fact that he's at work within his people But he's saying there's a greater reason to celebrate. Your name is written in heaven. Before you get there, there will be a nameplate sitting at your place at the table. You walk into heaven and we walk into the feast of the Lamb, to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we're going to walk up and we're not going to have to wonder, is there a table for me? Is there a seat for me at the table? Our name is going to be there. 
When he opens the Lamb's book of life, our name is written there. Our salvation is secure in what Jesus is doing here. Do not weep for me, he says. Because for my people, I am buying their salvation. I am providing for their eternal life. For you and for me, brother and sister in Christ, there is greater reason to celebrate than to weep for him. It's a better reason to celebrate than simply having power over demons, don't you think? The power over demons will last for a minute, but life with him forever will last for eternity. To these women, to these women who are weeping and just feeling sympathetic towards him, he points out there is a greater reason to weep. Because his condemnation, while it may bring salvation to those of us that receive him in faith, it brings judgment upon any who would reject him. Why do we preach the cross? Why do we celebrate such a great tragedy? When you come here every week... We, we, we don't preach the cross and confront our sin just to heap on guilt and make you feel bad about where you're at. Because it bought our salvation. It bought us life. We don't sing songs about his blood and the cross and ask him to lead us to it, to confront us with it, to put us in front of the cross. We don't ask to, 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 to see and understand the depths of his sacrifice so that we can just feel bad. But because he bought our salvation, we don't every week gather and remember the death of Christ, his beaten, bloodied, buried body by his blood shed out, buying our salvation. We don't remember that every week simply because we want to heap guilt upon ourselves. We remember it because in it he brings us salvation. It reminds us of who we are apart from him. It reminds us of what we deserve without him. But it also reminds us of what's coming to those who reject him. You see, if these women won't repent and receive him in faith as their prophet, priest, and king, judgment's coming. If they won't repent and receive him in faith as their Christ, as the promised Messiah that their people had been waiting on for generations, judgment is coming. If they won't repent and receive him in faith, but continue in their rejection of him altogether, they will face judgment. And we see that broken out. I mean, he says it pretty plainly. Verse 29, he says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Just think about what kind of things are going on in the world where it's no longer seen as a blessing to be, to be a parent, to be a mother. In their culture, in their day, it was seen, if, if a woman was barren, they, they, and this is wrong, and don't misunderstand what I'm, this is wrong. But they saw barrenness or an inability to, to give birth. They saw barrenness as a judgment from God, as his punishment upon them for some sin that they had committed. We know that that's not true. But now Jesus is saying such a time is coming to them 
that they will say it's better to never have kids. It's better to never know the blessing of holding a baby in your arms and nursing them. It's better to never know the reality of giving birth to be called mom or to be called dad. It's, ne- it's better just to not have that in our life. It's better because everything is so bad, I, I just assume not be a parent. Judgment is coming. A time so bad that we would prefer to be barren than productive. In verse 30, he goes on. And they will begin to say, I've lost my place. They, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. There's, there's coming a time that it won't be a blessing to be a parent and it will be better to be dead. We will long for death more than life. Imagine how bad it must be. Imagine how desperate we must feel. Imagine what must have to happen in us if we begin to prefer death over life. Fall on me and crush me, mountain. I'd just as soon be dead than continue to carry the weight of this junk that's happening. I'd I'd just as soon be dead. Imagine how horrific it will be that we would rather die than live. In verse 31, he finishes it with a parabolic parabolic saying, or maybe an analogy would be a better description of it. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This could be a reference to what Rome will do to to Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, Rome is going to come in and bring judgment upon Jerusalem. They are going to tear down the temple. They are going to decimate the city. And J.C. Ryle paraphrases it in this way, saying this. He says, if the, Ro- if the Romans practice such cruelties on me, who am a green tree and the very source of life, right? He's the innocent one. If the Romans practice such cruelties on me, who am a green tree and the very source of life, what will they do one day to your nation, which is like a barren, withered trunk, dead in trespasses and sins? So we could take it as if this was the Rome, what, what the Romans would eventually do to, to the Jews, or we could read it as Leon Morris does as, as a way to see and understand what God would do with the Jews. He says it this way, if the innocent Jesus suffered thus, what will be the fate of the guilty Jews? However we take this saying, however we receive it, however we interpret it, I think Jesus' point is clear. Judgment is coming. And in their continued rejection of it, there is no escape. Jesus' condemnation brings salvation to all who receive him. It gives us reason to celebrate. It gives us reason to stand up and celebrate. But at the same time, it brings judgment upon all who would reject him. Is that the way... Is that the application we bring to ourselves? Is that how we apply it now? I mean, he's speaking to these Jewish women, daughter of Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem. Is that how, how, how do we apply this today? Well, you may not have said it directly to us, but I think the principle bears out on us. Don't weep for Jesus. He does not need your pity 
To pity him is to degrade him, to pity him and feel sympathy for him as if some, he was some victim to injustice, as if in some way some mistake had happened and that was never supposed to happen. It's to diminish the reality that he chose to be here. We do not weep for Jesus. We worship him. We celebrate him. We exalt him. We honor him with our lives. We live in obedience to his commands. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the prophet, priest, and king who came and died in our place and for our sins as our sacrificial lamb. We don't need to weep for Jesus. We need to worship him. We need to see him for who he is. We don't worship or we don't weep for Jesus because Jesus isn't a victim of injustice. He is the suffering servant, purposefully stepping into this role, purposefully walking this path, purposefully intending to suffer at the hands of these people so that he could bring salvation to his people. We go back to Isaiah 53 and see that again. I mean, already in Isaiah, he's not just prophesying a suffering servant. He's prophesying a suffering servant who by his suffering would bring us salvation. (laughs) He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Out of the anguish of his soul, it says in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. By the bearing of our iniquities, he makes us righteous. And then in 12, again, seeing the the verse that he applied specifically to himself, I will divide a portion with the many. He's not keeping the reward. He's not holding the inheritance unto himself. He's going to divide it among us, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. By his intercession, by his intermediary actions, I am called innocent. You are called innocent. We are no longer sinners. We are saints, brothers and sisters. We don't weep for Jesus because pity isn't what Jesus wants, but he demands faith. We don't weep for Jesus. We worship him in faith as the eternal son of God. We trust him and his work for our salvation. We trust that he died in our place and for our sins. We don't weep for Jesus. We worship him as our savior. And while we see that we don't weep for Jesus, we need to also see that we don't weep for ourselves. Now I need to classify this, I need to qualify this just a little bit, just real quickly, because there's a reality that Paul tells us, and and over and over we're told, Paul specifically says to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, we're told over and over it's not going to be an easy life, we're told over and over that just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean it's the end of our suffering or the end of dealing with the difficulties of life. Somewhere along the way the Christian people of our country have begun to uh, uh, propagate and, and promise some prosperity gospel that's full of a well, it's just, it's wrong. So we sit around moaning and wailing and weeping and wanting others to weep with us and wanting to, want others to pity us and feel bad for us. Don't misunderstand me. Feel the weight. Feel the, the problem. Mourn when you need to mourn. And mourn with those who mourn. 
but then step into a place where you gain an eternal perspective and stop weeping as everyone else is weeping. It is time to quit moaning and groaning about the troubles we face, to quit moaning and groaning about light and momentary afflictions that are actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That is 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Every time we face trouble in our life, every difficulty, every problem, every issue, every hard circumstance, every difficult thing that leads us to mourning, God has promised, I will use this for your good. Brother and sister Christian, when we suffer and we get lost in our weeping so much that we can no longer see the glory of Christ, we are diminishing the reality that our salvation is certain. When we begin to question God as if we were suffering because he forgot us or doing something against us, we are doubting the very reality that he sent his son to die in our place and for our sin. We are forgetting the fact that he has purpose in every ounce of suffering. That's why the writer of Hebrews says you endure for discipline. Hebrews 12, he is treating you as a father treats his sons. When we get so lost in our weeping and wailing over our own issues, we forget the fact that we are children of God. It is time that we realize that these light and momentary afflictions give us greater reason to rejoice than they do to weep and find pity for ourselves. They are actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. It is time to rejoice in our sufferings, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, as James tells us in Romans cha- or, or James chapter two, uh, 1, it, verses 2 through 4. It's time to rejoice in our sufferings for his sake because we know that if we are united with Jesus in death, if we are united with him in his suffering, we will be raised within him in his life. That is Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Brothers and sisters, we have a greater future ahead of us. We diminish and deny the reality of the greater day coming when we get so lost in our suffering in this life that we miss the fact that God is doing something to prepare us to live forever in his presence. We do not need to weep for ourselves anymore, not because it's always going to be easy. We don't weep for ourselves because our names, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, our names are written in heaven. Our salvation is secure. Our eternal life cannot be diminished. Our life with him forever and ever in his presence, seeing him with our eyes and touching him with our hands, cannot be taken from us. We are his. So there's no need to weep anymore because judgment is assuaged. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We stand as accepted by him and with access to him. The creator God has made us his own through the death of his son Jesus Christ. We do not weep for ourselves because Christ, in Christ there is no condemnation. Romans 8 1. Your sin is not your sin anymore. You You commit a sin today, there's no condemnation. You commit a sin tomorrow, you commit a sin in the moment you die, there's no condemnation because Jesus Christ paid for all of your sin, not in part, but the whole it was carried to the cross. And we do not weep for ourselves because in Christ all things work together for our good. Listen, we got to get these words right. Romans 8.28, we can't swap them around. Paul does not say in Christ all good things happen to those who love Christ. He says all things work together for good. Everything that happens to us is for our good and is allowed, purposed, caused by a God who loves you as his child. We do not weep for ourselves 
brothers and sisters, because he uses it all to make us good and to give us good. We do not weep for ourselves because in Christ nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither life nor death, angels or demons. The powers in heavens can't, can't remove us. The powers of life and death can't remove us. We are safe and secure in the love that, of God that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 uh, I forgot the verse and I didn't write it down. It's at the end of Romans 8. Even in our mourning. Listen again, I'm not saying we never mourn. I'm not saying we never weep. I'm not saying that we never feel the weight of this. But we never feel the weight of this as those who have no other chance. Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that we don't even mourn as a people without hope. Even in our mourning, we weep and we mourn as a people with hope because we know if he didn't withhold his son from us, what else would he withhold, right? I mean, what wouldn't he grant us if he gave us his son? Romans 8.32, what won't he give us? Ephesians 1.3 says that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Peter writes that he has given in Christ, that he has given us all we need for life and godliness. God has not held anything back from you. We don't need to weep because there's a greater reason to celebrate. We don't need the pity of the world. We don't need the pity of our friends because we have been made alive in Christ. but I don't think we're done weeping because there's a reality that there are people who face judgment. Jesus doesn't need pity. You and I don't need pity. But a world that's rejecting Jesus should be pitied. Every person you know every person that you love, every person that's important to you, that rejects Jesus as the Savior is facing the judgment and the full wrath of God. And they don't need your pity from you, but they need your gospel. They need to know what you know. They need to be told what you've been told. They need to have an opportunity to believe what you believe that gives you reason to celebrate instead of weep. See, I don't need our pity. They need our gospel, but maybe it's our pity that moves us to actually pushing past some of our own insecurities and fears to care enough. Christian, let me just ask you a couple questions. When was the last time you looked at someone and pitied them? You pitied them not because they were poorer than you. When we go on these trips to Africa, it's so quick and so easy for, for a first-timer to walk into these villages and think, oh, they're poorer than me, I pity them. Not, not because of their race or the, some oppression or some hardship that they are facing. I'm not talking about pitying them for the, for the physical realities that they live in. I'm asking you, when was the last time you pitied someone because you recognized their rejection of Jesus was sending them to an eternal experience of God's wrath, an eternal hell from which there is no escape. When was the last time you wept and pitied someone so much that it pushed you past your own fears, your own senses of pity? Oh, but if I tell them this, they might not be my friend anymore. If I tell them this, it might make me feel rejected. If I tell them this, I'm going to experience problems. Oh, pity, oh, pity me. 
When was the last time you pitied someone else who's dying under the wrath of God that you couldn't keep your mouth quiet? You had to tell them. When was the last time you loved someone enough to tell them the truth about their sin, about God's justified wrath and the only hope of our salvation, Jesus Christ? When was the last time your pity was placed upon the people who need your pity most? And at the same time you're dealing with that, there's a reality that I think that maybe in this room, possibly in this room, are people who are hearing this, who by their religious acts or just by what they know and think that, ah, oh, that'll get me enough, that'll be all, that's all, that's all I need just by trying to have just enough of Jesus that he doesn't affect their life, but, oh, I'll be at church on Sunday and I'll listen to the preacher. He makes me mad a little bit, but there might just be somebody in this room that by their action and by their seeking to stand in their own power and by their own might is rejecting Jesus. You've been hiding in the church for a long time. Maybe you said a prayer as a child. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you even got baptized. You know the right language. You know the right things to say. You know the right things to do. But you've never trusted in the work of Christ for your salvation. That's rejection of Jesus. So let me just deal with you for just a minute to call you to see the truth. To get past the weeping. To get past the fears. To get past the self-pity. To get past the self-exaltation. To get past the idea that you deserve something more. You do not. Every person in this room, including me, is a sinner who needs a savior. I would encourage you to trust in him and him alone and then, and then put off the weeping and step in with brothers and sisters in Christ and celebrate the glory of a God who loved you enough that he sent his son to die in your place and for your sin that you might live in his presence forever and ever fully satisfying all the horrific things that are coming, satisfying the reality that judgment is on its way and giving you the opportunity <laughs> to receive grace and mercy and glory. Not because of what you've done, but because you quit rejecting Jesus and you just trusted him. You received him as your savior. Let's pray. Father God, Help us now. For those of us that are yours, convict us as necessary. Show us our sin as necessary that we might bring it to the cross, that we might see it satisfied, that we might see it forgiven, that we might stand in a place of no condemnation, that we might lay it down and stand in celebration and worship of your son. If there are any here today that have never trusted in you, have never 
never begun believing you. Whether they're hiding in religion or whether they're just hanging out with Christian folks or not even pretending. Maybe maybe they're just rejecting you outright. I, I don't know. Whoever they are, I would plead with you by your grace and mercy, open their eyes that they might know you. Regenerate their hearts that they might believe in you. And fill them with your spirit that they might begin to walk in obedience of you. Would you move on us today? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name and by your power and in your authority. Amen.